Ever send money abroad? Don't use a bank or PayPal? That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have over 4 million customers. And their borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out for free today at TransferWise.com slash Chang. That's TransferWise.com slash C-H-A-N-G. Or download the app today. Hi, everyone. We took a week off so everyone could recharge and reflect on the past year. I feel so fortunate to have been able to communicate with people via this podcast and to have found an audience with the Ringer Network and to have Apple name us one of the best podcasts of the year. I want to keep getting better. I have to keep getting better. Two things I want to work on specifically is not cursing as much, improving my vocabulary. And secondly, the art of uh, talking to people is not something I've ever given uh, too much of thought, and I need to be a better listener. So I am going to try. It is not something that I think is that easy, quite frankly, and I'm going to try my best. So bear with me as I try to get better, but this is how I look at cooking too. It's it's a challenge for me to constantly improve, and one of the things I want to do is get better at talking to people, and and I think you can only really talk to someone until you learn how to listen better, and I'm a work in progress. So with this very first episode, I wanted to take stock of where things are within the restaurant industry, where things are with me personally, with Momofuku, with doing media, Netflix show, and just to check in. wanted to fool around with the format of the show as well in the coming year, give you more of an inside look at the restaurant world. That's something we get a lot of uh, comments on through social media about more and more commenting about the restaurant world and where things are going and how things can be better for the people that work in it. And surprisingly, we get a lot of comments from people that are not in the restaurant world because they want to understand it better and they do like some of the weird, stupid analogies that I come up with in metaphors. So on top of all of that, We're going to talk a lot more about travel and dining and, of course, still do the interviews with friends, guests, people that I am curious about and want to talk to. Very fortunate for this opportunity, thanks to Uncle Bill Simmons and the whole Ringer Network, to Chris Ying, to Chris Chen, to Isaac Lee, the producer that has uh, really spent a lot of time shaping and listening to all of my nonsense. But I also want to hear more from you. So we're going to start answering some of your questions. Not sure it's going to work exactly, but if you have any burning questions, send them directly to askdave at majordomomedia.com. That's askdave, one word, at majordomomedia.com. Which leads us back into this very first pod. And I didn't mean to rant at all. I meant to talk to one of our guests that had a scheduling issue and we had to do it another day. But we had our engineer in New York come to Momofuku Co. where we recorded this. And I didn't want to just waste the opportunity and uh, gave me talking to thin air a shot. And I don't know how people do it. It's very hard to talk on and on and on in a meaningful way that's constructive by yourself. It's a real art form. Hats off to those that do it and do it really well. It's so fucking hard. Anyway. Besides ranting, the pod's a little bit about the state of the union, about where I'm at, and 
the weird timing of it all was Bong Bar. We recorded this, I think, around mid-November because I had just come back from doing a baby-to-baby event, and we had almost launched, I think, or were about to launch Bong Bar, which is in the Time Warner Center third floor, and we just opened up Noodle Bar as well, uh, Columbus Circle. So I go a little bit into detail as to why we did it. I don't properly explain everything But to the best of my abilities, and one of the things I think I said very dumb and stupidly was that no one had ever done this before. That is absolutely not true. Not what I meant in the frame of reference of what we were cooking at Bong Bar. It's done all over the world. What I was simply trying to imply is no one that I work with had ever worked at a place using vertical spits. And it was all new to us and fascinating, continues to be fascinating to us. But the timing of this all is crazy. I am on the road quite a bit. I'm not in LA or New York as I try to get ahead of the scheduling so um, we can accommodate the addition to my family, want to make sure that uh, we record where I can. So we did this mid-November, and a lot of my thoughts about opening a restaurant and doing bong bar, which was wildly out of my comfort zone and those that work at Momofuku, so you can hear some of that anxiety. We were very stressed out. I was particularly simple concept, hard to execute for us. And, you know, we had planned to release this pod this week, and I can't control how things work around the world, particularly in food media. But this week, uh, New York Times and Pete Wells gave us a um, full review in the dining section, and we got a one-star review, which is just amazing for our little shop on the third floor for 350 square feet to get reviewed with the New York Times and the first week of the new year, new year, it's uh, humbling. And I was really happy for the team that have worked so hard. JJ, Unjo, Robbie, Franklin, Tony, Marge, the whole team. I was uh, thrilled for, absolutely thrilled for, because there was a lot of effort that went into executing something that we had not done before. And for it to be well-received, is a great feeling. It's one of the happiest feelings I've been in a long time because it has genuinely been a group effort to get to this point. So it's just timing that this pod is launching with me rambling on and on and on and with uh, Bong Bar being reviewed this week in the New York Times. So you can check that out online. So this is something that we're going to get better at and uh, I will shut up and you can now listen to me talk more and more right now. I am in New York right now. It is freezing at Momofuku Co. I think it's a good moment to actually talk about some of the things that have been going on. And I think one of the most pertinent pressing topics in the culinary world is uh, work-life balance and stress. I see all kinds of people that are opening up restaurants or operating restaurants in a tremendous amount of pain, and all I want to do is help out. And the economics can be a drag. We've spoken a little bit about this before with Evan Kleiman and Deep of Good Girl Dinette, which unfortunately closed, and a few other chefs. But the real issue, I think, for a chef now is being a chef today, what does that mean? How do you do it? 
we've spoken to quite a few of my friends that are in this business that are sort of best in class. And I think the one prevailing theme that you hear time and time again is just how dumb it is and how hard it is, yet we do it and we pour ourselves into this. And once you get past, and if you're lucky enough to, to be in a successful business and the miracle that happens to make that happen, you need to know more than ever to be a chef, to run and operate a restaurant. This is going to be a weird association, but like when I think about physics or people that do like theoretical physics, even though I don't really know it at all, like if you were a physicist in like 1920, I'm not saying it was easier, but like you didn't need to know as much as the physicists do today. They need to know so much fucking more. It's not that they were less intelligent a hundred years ago, not at all. Just they didn't have as much in their sort of wheelhouse. So there's more than ever to know. And as the world gets smaller and as the social media and the internet makes it smaller in a, in a good way, it's like a gold rush of culinary knowledge and you can only do so much. So you're constantly trying to learn what's going on because if you don't know, you're sort of screwed and that's really taxing. Secondly, it's like, hey, like who's going to tell me how to get better? Who's going to tell me critical thinking? How do I have the time to reflect on being a, a business owner, on being a chef, it's, it's that reflection time that allows you to see what kind of mistakes need to be improved upon, so on and so forth. And between the economics, the constant studying, the inability to have time for reflection, you know, the, the other thing that's a real problem is, do you even have time for yourself, right? Like one of my, my good friends, he travels two hours to work and two hours back because he wants to have some semblance of a normal life in the country. And I'm like, dude, four hours a day, six days a week, you're out of your mind. And that's just not a realistic way. And I I applaud anyone that can dedicate that much travel time. But when you're in the kitchen all day long and you're trying to start a family and you already have a family, it's very hard to find that time to not be in a bad mood, to not be constantly worried about payroll about a review that's coming out. And that's probably the next thing that chefs are constantly terrified of are reviews. Whether it's something that can be relatively small and meaningless in a a Yelp review or something that's more massive in their local newspaper or blog or Instagram post or Twitter, you're constantly besieged by criticism. Hopefully it's good, but it's the bad that can really ruin your day. And on top of all of these other things that you have, right? Like you have the need to figure out how to interact with the world. Like you don't really have to talk to anyone to be a great cook. And now all of a sudden you could be really great cook, but you may not be a great chef because you've never been prepared to talk to the media, to talk to guests, to explain your quote unquote narrative and your culinary philosophy and all this shit, man. It's a lot. And then it all goes back down to how do you take care of running a business simultaneously? Oftentimes these chefs are in small businesses. A cook doesn't show up. A delivery is late. The water pipe bursts because it's cold outside. A server dropped the food to the wrong table and that table happened to be a critic. This is like a normal day. Day in, day out, you sort of get some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's constant anxiety. It's constant fear that every day is going to be terrible. I know that. And I know that's a terrible way to look, but... I never wake up thinking that today's going to be a great day. Today's going to be a day that I expect everything to go according to plan. 
Every day I wake up, I go to work, and I'm preparing for the absolute worst. Every time I get an email from a cook or someone that works for me that says, hey, can we have a talk? I'm always imagining that it's immediately they're going to leave. <sighs> health department's in. Like yesterday, we got two different restaurants, health department showed up. I'm fearing that maybe the inspector is misinterpreting the rule or something, and they're going to give us a bad grade. And then we're going to get a bad letter grade. And then customers are going to stop coming in. Like It's this never-ending fear of paranoid, rational paranoia and anxiety. So it's not a surprise to me that my friends are coming more and more and talking to each other. And I encourage us to talk more about it, about like, hey, man, like I'm having a really fucking hard time. And we were reaching a critical point, I think, for a lot of chefs globally, whether it's the Michelin Guide, the fucking top 50, all this other bullshit that's out there is like we are servicing everyone else except ourselves. And I'm trying to be a better boss to my own chefs because I see them making the same mistakes I have, trying to burn the candle at both ends. And I have to curb myself and say, hey, man, like take a breather. Stop. You don't have to do this. Just yesterday, like one of my one of my cooks was sick and he was out for like a week. And I was like, hey, what are you doing back here? He's like, no, I feel bad. I, I got to be at work. He's like, chef, I'm not contagious. Doctor said I could do it. I was like, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, dude, you, why weren't you at work two days ago? Now I'm like, bro, stay home. We'll make do. We'll, it's not going to be the end of the world. And it's a learning process because it's a sea change in our industry about how we approach things. And the thing that matters the most to me is the mental state of a lot of the people that I see pouring themselves in this business that I wonder how much they realize they may not have that much for them when it's all said and done, right? Their body's going to betray them at any point. The critics will say their food's not good anymore. And yeah, certainly I'm projecting myself, but it's a projection that I've seen play out time and time again in my business that all of a sudden they don't really have that much money saved up. If anything at all, if they close the restaurant, they lose healthcare. And now that they're not as cool or relevant anymore, what exactly are they going to do? Write a cookbook? Cookbooks really don't make you any money. And it's a scary proposition as more and more of my friends with kids reach, you know, the late 40s, 50s, 60s retirement age, where the first time we can actually see a generation of cooks and chefs know what happens when they finish their career. And you have to ask yourselves, is it all worth it? I can't tell you it is. Other than having relatively nothing in your bank account, a broken body, and a lot of integrity of how you cook things, that doesn't really like justify all that you sacrificed. So I don't have an answer. All I know is that it needs to be spoken about a little bit more and we need to have more honest conversations about how we are looking at the stress that is placed upon a lot of us. Without a doubt, a lot of the stress that I put on myself was created by me. Most of that responsibility is on me. I get that. As it is the same with a lot of my chef friends. But there's a lot of stuff out there that I don't know exactly how to articulate or talk about that is manufactured by outside of us. And the more aware we are of that, the more we can realize that it's sort of absurd and relatively meaningless. I think we can sort of figure out what's important and we can move on. If anything, the past year has taught us, like literally dying over this stuff is not worth it at all. We need to be careful about what we wish for. And we need to talk to the culinary schools. We need to talk about how we market being a cook and a chef today. 
and be honest about what you're going to have at the end of it all, which is why one reason I've been incredibly critical of cooking schools. I'm not saying cooking schools are the, the scourge of the earth and they're evil. I'm a product of the cooking school. I don't think I needed to go to cooking school, but there are people that need these schools and benefit tremendously. And I'm thinking like most recently, we talked to Jessica Largi, like if she didn't go to cooking school, I don't know if she has the career that she has today and so on and so forth. There are people that genuinely benefit from all kinds of cooking schools. But the problem is they're the exceptions to the rule and more people spend too much money and go into serious debt. We're talking about 30 to $50,000 of debt, sometimes per year for the tuition for a job that will probably not even pay them that much per year in income. And as glamorized as cooking is, I don't know if we've glamorized what is at the end of the rainbow for a lot of us. And that's what we need to have a more real conversation. I encourage everyone to read a story by Charlotte Druckmann. Uh, it was an eater about the pastry chef for the Bastianish Batali empire. And she easily made the best gelato in New York City for many, many years. And she's sort of a legendary figure. It's a heartbreaking story about someone that sort of paved the way for an industry in her way and actually wound up with nothing. I won't say nothing. It's not like that. She's improved a lot of different things, but so many people in this profession, all they care about is serving others. And the last thing they ever do is serve themselves. So... Maybe you guys already know this, and if you don't know this profession, you should know that it's incredibly difficult and financially unrewarding, and we need to have some real conversations. I didn't plan on talking, nor do I want to talk about this much longer because it really bums the shit out of me. Maybe this is something we do on the regular about just updating what the fuck's going on. We are also filming the next season of Ugly Delicious. Things are a little bit crazy right now because we've opened up a restaurant and we're opening another restaurant, and then we're opening another restaurant in March. So there's a lot going on work-wise, and the filming of this show is a giant time suck. And plus, I got to do this podcast that I've now dedicated myself to. So weirdly, I'm working more than ever. And I have to remind myself how lucky I am because I am the greatest bitcher and complainer you probably have ever listened to or met. And I was bitching to the high heavens the other day about my poor fucking schedule. How would I got to go to all these amazing countries and eat all this amazing food? And, and I was basically saying how hard that was going to be for me. And I didn't even take stock to look at how fortunate I am and how lucky I am and what a wonderful opportunity it is to go to a place like India, to go to a place like Burma, to go to Turkey travel back and forth all over America to talk to amazing individuals and hear their stories. And uh, I'm basically just, it's like some kind of confession that I'm basically telling you that I'm a fucking whining baby and I need to stop doing it. Um, big, big thank you to anyone that watched the show. I know it wasn't necessarily perfect and I doubt that this season will be perfect. Know that everyone on this season is trying to make it as best as possible. Apologies if I came across to anyone as a dick in the first episode. That wasn't my goal. There was a lot going on that year. But I'm really excited to get to India. Incredibly excited. It's a country that I've never been to. There's a lot to discover there. It's almost impossible to talk about Indian food in a show. You're, you're going to have to do a whole sort of season dedicated to it. But I'm really happy about some of the topics that we're going to discuss 
and a couple new wrinkles in what Ugly Delicious is going to be. And I can't talk too much more about it, but if you see us filming in your town, it means we're filming the fucking show. So uh, we were in Portland recently. Big shout out to Peter Cho and the whole team at Han Oak and his beautiful wife and his kids. A remarkable restaurant in the sense that they literally live in the restaurant next door, serving fantastic food. I think what Peter and the team at Han Oak is doing in Portland is tremendous. Uh, great town. I didn't get to spend there long enough, but it's super rad to see someone that has never made Korean food, but has worked in some of the best kitchens, make his version of Korean food. It's the best kind of weird. And I highly encourage more people to eat there. He's won a lot of awards recently, but I don't know if he gets enough credit for the kind of setup he has. <laughs> it's, it's probably the most bonker ass restaurant in North America that serves amazing food. Um, you might see it more and more in Europe where the house that the chef and the family lives in is also on the property of the restaurant. But I don't think it's ever happened literally in the restaurant. Like there's a wall and then there's his apartment. And to have his two kids running around where people are eating, it's complete chaos, but in the best possible way. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about becoming an expecting dad and what it means to sort of put your parent hat on as a priority versus being a chef all the time. So shout out to Peter. I think you're doing incredible special things. And to Portland. God damn it. I can't remember the chicken rice place, but I had a wonderful lunch there. And to the employee in the back that was nervous, uh, apologies if I was shocked at your, uh, <laughs> your, your offer to take a photo. I was just getting down in the chicken and I didn't really think too much about anything else. Right? I didn't even think weirdly enough that anyone would bother me. So we are filming the Netflix show. I don't know when it'll be released and we're going to be filming it for a while trying to get a lot of filming done before we won't get all the filming done, but most of it before our baby is born. I wanted to talk so about something that continues to happen time and time again. Many of my friends that are not in the industry always ask me where my favorite restaurants is to eat. I'm in a weird place. It's not like I'm trying to go to the hottest restaurants in the world, but this is sort of going to be my, where I want to eat, what I like to eat corner. I've been in LA for about almost 11 months. I had uh, not been to Una Pizza Napolitana since I've been in LA. And Anthony, the chef founder of Una Pizza, little side note story. It is now a uh, Moto Pizza. I think it's on like 13th and uh, 1st Ave. That space used to be a small Thai restaurant or Italian years ago, 2003. I almost took that space that later became Una Pizza Napolitana like six months after. The only reason I didn't take that to be the first noodle bar was the basement was very, very tiny and had low ceilings. And I knew I needed a walk-in refrigerator. So I took the first space at 163 First Avenue as the original Momofuku Co. So I would walk past that location all the time. So when Una Pizza opened up, Ed Levine who founded Series Eats, and he's a great sort of gourmand columnist, was like, hey, this guy, he had a pizzeria in New Jersey. He's opening up in New York City at this, you know, right above you. You got to check it out. I think he makes some of the best pizza around. And I had never had, outside of uh, my, you know, couple times in Italy, I didn't even think I had Neapolitan pizza. It was the first time I had pizza that wasn't pizza, that I thought was pizza, right? I grew up eating like Domino's pizza. 
and obviously slices of a pizza in New York, but like someone that was so uncompromising in the kinds of pies that they were going to make. He only made like two, a marinara and a margarita. And there was like nothing else. And the pizzas were so expensive. I thought like 18 bucks. And he had this beautiful oven. He had all these tattoos and it was like, I want to say romantic is the word, but there was something magical about what was happening there. And I loved it so much. And I was so sad that he moved to San Francisco and for reasons that hopefully he'll come on this pod to explain. And he opened up Una Pizza out there and, and graced San Francisco with his great pizza. And when Fabian and Jeremiah of Concha Wild Air were like, hey, we want to, we're going to open up a pizzeria with Anthony from Una Pizza. I was like, what the fuck? He's going to leave San Francisco. He's going to come back to New York. I was overjoyed because I love his pizza. It, was, it taught me a lot about food and craftsmanship and sort of the singular focus you need to make something incredibly delicious. So when they opened up, uh, I can't even remember the street I was on. I, I missed it. And it, I was really upset that some of the reviews were not as stellar. Uh, I think they were not fair. I disagree with them. I think that arguably the best pizza in New York City right now is at Una Pizza. It's amazing. It's delicious. I'm a big fan of the marinara. I've only tried three of the pies. And with the Contra guys, you have this great sort of antipasti salumi selection and then killer, killer desserts. So it's like two restaurants in one. And I'm a big fan of it. I can't wait to go back again. And I think the pies are more delicious than they've ever been. And someone like Anthony needs to be celebrated more, not less. And it's funny. It's like almost being a tax for being one of the like great pizza makers we've had over the past 50 years. And I genuinely, I'm not blowing smoke up his ass or lying. I think the pizza is better than ever before. So I highly encourage everyone to go eat it, which leads me to the other non-restaurant recommendation. Those that know me know that I'm a huge fan of the Hillstone Houston restaurant group. One day we'll probably do a giant podcast about it because I think of no restaurant group more than them. Everything they do to me is sort of groundbreaking. I don't even think anyone is even close to how they operate from how they hire, from how they train, to how they do menu development, to how they create new concepts, to how they, what was most specific to me. And I really do want to do a podcast just on this group. And they have restaurants in so many places, in places that you don't even know, like in Palm Beach, they have Palm Beach Grill. They have R&D Bar, Honor Bar so many different restaurants and they're all tweaking and it's an unbelievable, consistent and not cheap restaurant group and people fucking love it. I love it. So without talking forever about how much I love it, the one thing I will talk about right now is one thing that I've incorporated in our restaurants is a restaurant group that's as corporate and massive as Hillstone's, yet they still have singular uh, touches that are unique to each location in the restaurant. It's like a chain restaurant, but not a chain restaurant. And I think that's what makes it fascinating. And what was probably one of the most unique things that they do is that they bake all of the bread in-house for all their sandwiches and all of the different ways bread is used in their menu, which is wide and varied. That doesn't make any sense to me, right? And we're living in a world right now where, at least in the restaurant industry, where 
you're getting a lot of money pouring in and uh, you have a lot of people that come from different financial backgrounds and I call them the bean counters and they're making decisions on efficiency and maximizing profit. And they're editing ideas that might be beautiful and delicious to have it sort of cost effective. And that's what you would probably associate with a giant restaurant group like Hillstones, because they're so good at generating revenue, making profit, that if you really think about the fact that they make all their bread in-house, that is the least efficient, most labor-intensive, most space-consuming process you could possibly do. Yet they do it at almost every location. And I think that there's a reasoning to that. And it's something that we've incorporated in our restaurants because I constantly look at what they're doing. They're making their bread in-house, I believe, to include not just make bread in-house, which is delicious, right? I think it's educational. And there's something about taking raw ingredients like flour, yeast, or if it's a sourdough thing, right? Like a Levain, I don't think they're doing that, but whatever. They're, they're making their bread. There's something about making it from scratch that increases employee morale. It makes it seem like you have a purpose there. You can also smell the bread being made. That whole process, while is labor inefficient and cost ineffective, has incredibly positive attributes everywhere else. And it's something that I'm trying to tell my own staff a little bit more and more that don't edit out something just because you think it's a bad idea, just because it doesn't make sense on paper, just because it might cost a lot of money. Because I think that the employee satisfaction at a Hillstone restaurant's got to be a little bit higher for many reasons. One of the reasons why for both customer and employee is the fact that they're baking bread in-house. It's something simple, but there's something that is incredibly heartwarming, incredibly artisan about it. And I know as a cook, there's something widely different about making something with your hands and serving it as labor intensive as it might be over and over and over again, then repeating the same process by opening a plastic bag and putting it on a plate. And that's what I think a lot more restaurants are turning into. So it's great to see someone bucking the trend and baking bread is, is the thing like baking bread is not necessary. You have amazing bakeries all over the world now in New York, there are countless great bakeries. And I'm not saying make every kind of bread, right? If you want to make baguettes, I think you need just a baker, right? Like there are places that just focus on making specific kinds of breads. I am not a bread expert. And making bread, while simple in procedure, is not very simple to execute. And it takes a lot of space and a lot of labor and a lot of love and a lot of know-how to just do the steam bread. So we knew that we just sort of couldn't do it. And simultaneously, as a lot of people started putting steam buns on their menu, people making restaurants just out of the bun, it was like something that I moved past. I didn't want to want to fuck with it anymore. I wanted to run far away from it as possible. It's, it's like singing the same song over and over and over again or telling the same joke over and over and over. You just want to do something else for a while. And then I got to go to China and travel more and realize that the nikuman and the steamed buns are sort of prevalent. And that dough, it's a yeasted steamed dough, was like, where the fuck did we get yeasted dough from? How did that even make sense? In Korea, you have the thing called hotdog, which is like a stuffed, griddled, yeasted pancake. It's like almost like a, a repa, but with regular 
flour in it. And I learned that a yeasted dough doesn't really come from Korea. That came from Chinese immigrants from Northern China. If you go to the Beijing area, you're going to see more breads than you do rice. There's a lot more wheat there. And bread is one of those things that I think is sort of universal. Anyone that sort of domesticated a grain figured out that it can turn into a bread and a flatbread at that. And you see flatbreads throughout China, throughout the world, throughout the Middle East, throughout everywhere. So we started out with hot dog dough, which originally was the steamed bun dough from the original pork buns at Momofuku, and filled that with California dates, took that out, and just started griddling them. And that was Bing. And I was like, what do we do with this Bing? Like, it's delicious if we just put butter on it. And then we just decided to dip it. And it became like sort of the de facto starter at Major Domo through this like roundabout process that sort of started all the way back at Sambar in a weird way 12 plus years ago and sort of the inability for us to do it in-house. And I did not want to do steam buns at Major Domo. It was very important that we did everything new and different. And I was like, fuck, like, how do we do this, right? Is this even a thing? And, and then I realized like, yeah, why not? Let's just fucking try it out. And I was also like, I did a commercial with Joseph of PYT and Barama and Orsa Winston. And I had no idea that he had a thing called Bacow. So I just want to give a shout out to him that like his restaurants are world-class, amazing. And he is a true trendsetter in downtown Los Angeles. And he has his own thing called Bacow. I honestly had no idea when I told him and I saw him, I was like, bro, like I'm telling you, I, I, we created something completely independent and I don't want anyone to think that, especially you of all people that we're trying to do anything. And it's not like his at all, but griddle flatbreads is something that is sort of relatively universal and it's definitely derived from our steamed bun and we were griddling it. So that was that. And then after opening a major domo, we kept on fucking around with it more and more and more because I just didn't want to griddle into like Frisbee-like shapes. I kept on doing laminated doughs. I would stuff it with butter. I would put everything bagel spices in it. I would put one of my, one of my favorite things to eat is, um, man, I'm just letting it all fucking out there now, is Domino's jalapeno chicken cheesy bread with bacon. It's fucking rad. And if you dip that in ranch dressing, I'm sorry, man. Like you can talk shit about it as much as you want. Please do. Fuck you because it's delicious. So I started putting jalapeno peppers and smoked chicken scraps and bacon. And it was, it's fucking delicious. But the problem is it was super time, time intensive. And before we opened up when I wanted to do a Bing section and a lot of people were like, wait, like Dave's joking. You can't roll the shit all a minute. You can't do it in the moment. All a minute is French for in the moment. Like you're doing it to order. And time and time again, like I feel like as I've operated and have ideas for Momofuku and how we started, a lot of the things that we did become urban legend because they were so fucking dumb upon hearing it. They're like, why would you ever do that? But they don't realize the reason we're here is because we did all this dumbass shit. And by doing dumb stuff, by failing, and failing over and over and over again, you create your own narrative and you create something special and you get to see not just efficiency, you get a whole new creative process. It's, it's working on a dish without editing in your head. It's like, how would someone know what's right if they don't do it? You can't just do it in your fucking head. This ain't a math problem, right? This is something you have to physically do. And had I left it to the people that work with me and God bless them, they're fantastic, but they were they were trying to push for efficiency rather than 
executing what was delicious in the moment. We would have probably prefabricated all these doughs and then like just reheated them. And, and that's not what we wanted to do. We would have probably not had a good restaurant because there's something that gets lost amongst the cooks. So I got thinking about doing things that were not efficient and doing things that were dumb. And I was laminating all these doughs, as I explained. And the one thing that I wanted to do was like figure out, could I turn this dough and stretch it with oil, almost turning into like a phyllo or a lavash or a laffa. And a lot of these breads that you see more in what is now sort of the Muslim banned territories from fucking Trump. And I was more curious about how that would work. And I started studying a lot about these food cultures because when the Muslim ban happened, everyone's like, hey, how are you going to support these countries and the food cultures that I knew nothing about? I know so little about most of the food cultures in this world that the last thing I wanted to do was put something on the menu and say, oh, like donate to charity because like people need it. Like I thought that wasn't the right thing and I didn't know anything about it. So we wanted to take our time and I I didn't want to put some bastardization of, uh, of a dish that. I knew nothing about like you can't just read something or watch some YouTube video and the next day put something on right like we wanted to make sure that we took the time whether it was going to be spices we didn't know and it's been a long road and and while major doma was going on and screwing around with this I, I was like learning more and more about what we could be doing particularly through the bread and one other incident that happened that changed my world was when we filmed Ugly Delicious, I actually had no idea that the pastor taco came from Lebanon. Had no fucking idea. And my reaction is genuine. I was like, holy fuck. It was one of the monumental seismic shifts in my world because it was like simultaneously, like, you're an idiot, Dave. And secondly, like you can't judge anything because you don't know the stories. And the fact that it came from Lebanon made me realize that there's something special. There's something that I don't know much about. And it led me back to trying to study a lot of these foods more. And the one thing that I kept on going back to wasn't actually the bread that had similarities to the flatbreads that I see in China called Bing. I kept on going back to the vertical spit, what you see in Donner kebab shops and shawarma spots and gyro spots. And I was blown away. The more and more I looked and thought about the vertical spit, the more and more I realized that it was probably racism that prevented any other restaurant groups or cultures from using it that I knew of. We have rotisseries in our restaurants, but the fact of the matter is like, there's a lot there. We're probably going to talk about this in in the Netflix show. So it's not something I want to go too deep in, but I was kept on thinking about the vertical spit. So I immediately started thinking about like, why? And that wasn't just racism, but it was like, why was something so genius sort of left to just, you know, cheaper, quote unquote, ethnic food spots. And I kept on thinking like, that's not right. We got to experiment with this. And besides me stuffing my face with pastor tacos the past year, God bless LA and the fucking pastor tacos. I needed to do some research and see if the, the spit would be something that I could cook other things on. And eating a lot of Korean barbecue and going to parks and eating deji bulgogi, which is basically like Korean pork belly. Like my mom would do this in the summertime, marinating in kochujang, and then like grilling that over a grill. Like that was my barbecue. I didn't eat hot dogs and hamburgers. I ate fucking like spicy pork. I, I was like, well, the pastor, they're putting pork on the spit, which would be not happening in Muslim countries. And it's delicious. So I was like, fuck. 
I want to take pork, marinate in my mom's gochujang recipe, and make deji bulgogi, and I'm going to put it on a spit and slice it and see what happens. And then I was like, wait a second, what just happened here? It's delicious. What is it? Is it Korean food? So we kept on fucking around with that over the past year. And I was like, I think we have something. Simultaneously, we kept on like fucking around with the Bing bread. So of course, I'm going to take the Bing bread, slice the fucking meat that we've been fucking around in the back and eat basically a giant pita bread-like thing stuffed with spicy pork. And it was fucking delicious with pickled onions. And it was so much fun. And I didn't know what I was eating. I didn't know what country or provenance. All I knew was it integrated all of these countries, not just countries from the part of the the Middle East, right? And that's not even the technically the right word for that area, but like Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, a lot of Turkish influence with Korean food, with Japanese food, with America, with Mexico. And like, I was really proud of it because I couldn't see where the seams were stitched together. And it was something that was not only weird to figure out where the provenance was from, it was ultimately delicious. And the only thing that was agnostic was the technology behind it. It's something we're going to talk a lot more in the TV show. So I'm not trying to tease anyone. I, I have no idea when exactly it's going to come out. But that was sort of the genesis for Bong Bar was all of these things. It was literally like 25 many different threads that was sort of weaved together and we were going to be in the Time Warner Center. And Time Warner Center is like super expensive. And I wanted to do something that was affordable and something that was new and something that was out of our comfort zone. So we did Bong Bar. And we wanted to make it affordable. That was the thing. And the interesting thing is people are like, it takes too long. It's taking too long. I didn't know if it was going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we've never done this before. So we're rolling the bread to order. We're cutting the meat to order. And we're assembling it for the people that like are right there. And... You know, we're going to figure out how to make it faster and better, but ultimately like we're running out because there's only so much bread we can make and there's only so much meat we can cook on a spit and it's all done specifically for that customer that ordered it. And that's something I'm proud of. It's transparent and there's no bullshit behind it and we're making it scratch every day. So we're going to figure out how to make more of it, but like, that's where we're at right now. It's a long-winded way of me talking about how the fuck we got there. But the one thing I kept on thinking about back before Bong Bar happened, and just to give you a sense of what the fuck is wrong with me, I couldn't, for the life of me, stop thinking about Dick Fosbury of the Fosbury flop. Do you know who Doug Fosbury is? <laughs> Talking to the engineer. <laughs> He's like shaking his head like, I am very scared right now. What the fuck is this lunatic talking about? I don't know why I was thinking about it. I don't think I've ever thought about him ever before. Maybe I have. I don't remember. Maybe the last time I thought about Dick Fosbury was like, I maybe had to do like a high school or like a sixth grade report on the dude. But in 1968, he won the gold medal in the high jump by doing something that was roundly criticized. That was seen as not athletic. That was not seen as high jump like. That was seen as weird. That was seen as controversial. That was ultimately made fun of as dumb, quote unquote, that's not how you do it. So I'm again, like I'm not an expert in this and I haven't even seen much of this, but traditionally people would do the high jump by literally jumping towards the bar that's elevated several feet off the ground and like leap over it, you know, like Superman and Dick Fosbury, 
I don't know the reasoning, but like probably wasn't as good as the people that were constantly winning. I think like the highest he'd ever placed before was like 38th or something like that. He figured out if he took a certain angle, almost like a parabola, and then jumped reverse ass side backwards towards the bar, he'd get more elevation and then lift his hips up and go higher than what was quote unquote traditional. And he won the fucking gold medal in 1968. All along the way, everyone was like, fuck you. You can't do this. That's cheating. Or you're, you suck at this. And all you need to know is if you ever watch the high jump now, no one does it the way they used to do it. Everyone does it the Fosbury flop way. And that's what I kept on thinking is like, it was right there. And the only thing that prevented people from doing it was you can't do it that way. Right. And that's why I was so fearful about bong bar was like, shit, like, are we allowed to do this? Can we make a restaurant where we're making all the bread to order? Everyone in my mind, whether it was real or imaginary was saying, this is stupid. Fuck you. This is dumb. And again, whether it was real or imaginary for my own team, I was, I knew that people around me were thinking, and listen, this is not just me there. There's JJ, there's Josh, there's Unjo, there's Marge. There's so many people that made this happen. But I was just in my head thinking, this is the dumbest fucking thing we've ever done. And I keep on saying it's the dumbest thing we've ever done. Cause when I see us do the production to order, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm shocked at how dumb this is. Cause it's not how you would ever do it. It's almost like that, the Seinfeld episode where Costanza decides he was going to do everything opposite of what he would normally do and everything works out. And there's a, I swear to God, we, we, I listed out all the potential bottlenecks or quote unquote stupid ass things about bong bar. And there was like eight or nine of them that someone with a more rational bean counter mind would say, why are you doing it this way? That's so dumb. And I sort of looked at this as a way to explain to everyone, this is why we're doing it. You're going to say this, but we're going to do it this way so we can explore X, Y, and Z. And I don't have an answer, but all I know is we're going after something different. We don't want efficiency. And I know that people are going to complain, but maybe we need to be efficient in our inefficiency. We need to like explore how to fuck this up and not have enough. Listen, we're like under 400 square feet. There's only so much dough we're going to be able to make. Sorry, there's only so much meat you can put on a vertical spit. So we were very limited and people, and like, I know that's not just imaginary. I know other people are like, why you got to be open more. I'm like, how? Right? Like, well, you, you got to make more. I'm like, how? Like, let us explore. And we want to do more. But until we get to that point of making more and figuring it out, let us figure it out. <laughs> no one has the fucking answer here. Sure as hell, the fucking bean counter. So we're in the process of figuring it out. And I apologize if it's slow and laborious, but it's new territory for us. And more than anything, we would like to feed more people, but we're figuring it out. It's never been done before. And I know that we're being called dummies and I'm not comparing us to fucking Dick Fosbury. I'm not saying that at all. I was just thinking about that as like sort of defiance of what is the status quo. And right now I am fucking sick and tired of the status quo of how you operate restaurants, how you fucking are allowed to talk about restaurants, how you're allowed to fucking behave and, and, and have emotions about restaurants from a chef to how you operate. And I'm tired of editing ideas in your head. I think we need to get back to doing it 
and fucking it up and going through each and every iteration by fucking it up. And if we ever get to the point of maximum efficiency, great. But there's a good probability that if we are dedicated to improving, dedicated to making it better every day, that growth process is going to look tremendously different by the end goal. And I just have to believe in that. That's something I have to fucking believe in. So, yeah, bong bar. There's a lot more to talk about, right? We fucking did mortadella. Like, fuck, man. The dumbest thing we've ever done. Just slicing mortadella, stacking with lardo so it stays moist. And then like putting it in like smaller bings, like a shout out to like breakfast tacos. And we have um, smoked salmon. And I mean, I'm not making any sense because by the time this listens, like maybe none of this works or maybe it doesn't even uh, taste good to you. But I am actually more proud about our little project than I have been about anything in a very long time because it shows to me whether it works long term or not, I'm totally comfortable in it failing. Because each and every step of the fucking way, we decided to say, you know, throw the middle finger up at how you're supposed to do it. And I'm proud of the entire team that has endeavored to do something new. And man, it's fucking hard, man. Everyone there is working so goddamn hard and we're blessed to have that staff. So that's a long-winded way. And that's not even the entire fucking explanation of what Bung Bung Bar is. But I wanted to talk about that and somehow that makes sense. Hopefully. And... That is probably the first and last time I'll do a solo podcast of rambling incoherentness. 